Today's scripture reading will be from 2 Samuel 4, verses 1 to 4. Um, In the Pew Bibles, this is on page 257. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son and two men were, who were captains of raiding bands, the name of the one was Ba'ana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth is also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. This is the word of the Lord. A lot of names there for those of you who are looking for baby names. Um, This is really popular. I'm waiting to do a baby dedication of Mephibosheth. That would be really awesome. We left off a couple of weeks ago in um, 2 Samuel 3. Background there, Abner, uh, military leader of the northern tribes of Israel, is assassinated, is, is murdered by Joab, a uh, military leader of David's army in Judea. And so this was a, a first-degree murder. This was a premeditated murder by Joab. And although David punished Joab, it wasn't really justice. Justice wasn't really served. And so that's the background heading into chapter 4. And I think, at least it's the case for my daughters when they're reading the Old Testament, they just notice like how barbaric it is and bloody, and they always question, like, why is it more bloody in the Old Testament than the New, and why is it more barbaric and savage and all these types of things? And I need to share, like, it, it's not that the author of this book likes to present this sort of stuff. It's actually that the writer of the book is opposed to those things, is, is opposed to brutality, is opposed to cruelty. And the point the author is making in recording all of these atrocious events is that this bloody cruelty of man does not work out the righteousness of God. And so trying to portray that to show like that, that it doesn't work, that this is not the righteousness of God. So what's going on here? And, and so the writer is, is mocking this brutality. Take a look at verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. So Ishbosheth was the next in line to the throne of Saul since his brothers were killed in battle. And Abner crowned him as this puppet king of the northern tribes at Mahanaim. And we talked about that and the significance or insignificance of that because Mahanaim really doesn't have any sort of significance whatsoever in the north. And so Abner was really the one who held all this power and Ishbosheth was just this figurehead puppet king. So like Game of Thrones-like, isn't it? But anyway, Abner, Abner's dead now. Abner's dead, and so there's no surprise that this figurehead king, Ishbosheth's uh, courage failed him because, you know, his most powerful ally is now dead. So no surprise that all of Israel is dismayed because now who's going to lead their army against the Philistines if they were to attack? Who's going to 
defend them if David decides to attack from the south? Who's going to defend them? And so, of course, they're dismayed. And here's Ishbosheth, who knows that he doesn't have any real power. Verses 2 through 4. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Ba'anah, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. And Beeroth is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Githim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, the son of who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and she fled in her haste. He fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Okay, I read it fast because Andrea already read it. Now, Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, and we're going to hear more about him in chapter 9, so we're not going to talk much about him at all. Today, we're going to get there in a few weeks when we get to chapter 9. But why do we hear of him here? And the writer is pointing out that there really isn't anyone left in the entire house of Saul who can take leadership of the throne. And he's showing that this is it. There's nobody else. And so the, the Philistines essentially wiped out everyone in the house of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 31 when they defeated the Israelites at Mount Gilboa. And he's showing, verse 4, there's nobody left. Like Saul's family is pretty much, it's, it's done. And the one who really had the power, Abner, is now gone. So these, these two captains, Be'anah and Rechab, step in for this power grab. They step in for like this political maneuvering because they know they are not powerful enough to overcome David. So, so what do we have to do in order to survive and like make the situation good for ourselves because, you know, we're, we're two captains, and if anything, when, when we're defeated, we're nothing. So what are we going to do to make ourselves be in a better place? Verse 5. Now the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, Rechab, and Ba'anah set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And so Rechab and Ba'anah attack their king during his nap time. That's messed up. Right, like, how cowardly can you be? Like, can't you at least like do face to face? You gotta wait till the guy's like, me, me. You know, like he's like, just a cowardly act on a defenseless person. And so, more details are given to us in verse six. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, escaped. So they stab him in the stomach, and if you've read the few chapters before, everyone likes stabbing each other in the stomach. I don't know why. Then in verse 7, it gives us even more detail, and this is a Hebrew narrative tool in that they often write in this way, where they give these really concise details, like in verses 5 and 6. They give you these concise details, and then they give you the expanded version later on, like in verse 7. So in verse 7, here's the expanded version. Verses 5 and 6, they kind of gave you the concise details, and here's a recap of an expanded version of verse 7. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. Now keep in mind, from Mahanaim to Hebron is about 80 miles. 80 miles. You know, that's a, that's a good trek across the desert. That is not a one-night journey. That's a few days of walking around with Ishbosheth's head in a sack. 
And so imagine the picture here. And it seems that the author is actually knocking Rehab and Be'ena's actions, which is also kind of knocking them as people themselves. And so the writer is mocking them, and he's mocking their actions, and there's this sense of sarcasm here from the Bible. Because if you can imagine, Ishbosheth is taking a nap in his bed in his bedroom, totally defenseless, just taking his afternoon nap, and these guys are supposed to be on his side. These guys are our military leaders for Israel, and they go in pretending to get wheat. They pretend going into this house, getting wheat, and so their, their plan is to kill Ishbosheth, but you have to keep in mind just have a picture of what these guys look like. And this is just kind of silly if you do this. They are captains of raiding bands. So imagine what Rechab and Ba'ana look like. Probably pretty tough guys, right, to, to be raiders, which is why the Oakland Raiders were named raiders. Like, they're supposed to be tough. And so, like, have you ever been to a raider game and you've been to the black hole and stuff? Just imagine that. Like, Crazy, loud, big guys. Like, I don't Picture what they would typically wear as a raider and how they were probably physically built. Probably pretty imposing people. And how their hair was worn. It was probably not very neat. It was probably just kind of like crazy. I don't know. They probably had facial hair. They probably didn't care about how they kept their hygiene. They probably had these scowling faces as they walked all around. They probably had like battle scars and, and wounds and things like that. And, and they, they were fearless, so, so they acted tough. And, they, and you could probably see it in how they even walked, right? Like, like a tough guy has a tough guy walk and a non-tough guy has a non-tough guy walk, right? Like a, a tough guy doesn't walk like... <laughs> like... They don't do that, right? Like a tough guy is like chest out, like confident and they have like a swagger and they're and this is this is how they're looking but that's not the case here that's not how they look and so the writer here is mocking and there's some sarcasm by saying like aren't these tough guys just so tough that they have to pretend to gather wheat on their way to kill this puppet of a king who has no power and who's just taking a siesta like, isn't, isn't that odd? And so the author is making fun of Rechab and Ba'ana, and it's not like these guys going all raider-like with the strut, with their crazy hair and crazy face and scowl and all this kind of stuff marching in. They're probably dressed a little differently, like a wheat farmer. So the hat, and they probably like, walk like a wheat farmer and like pretending and maybe they had a little little shovel or a hoe or something and they're walking in pretending and so totally different. They look different, they act different, they put a smile on their face and said hello to people as opposed to I'm gonna take your stuff. Hi, how are you doing? Where's, how's the wheat going? You know, like it's totally different. And so there's this sarcasm going on and I've dealt with people who have debated me about sarcasm in the Bible because they believe it's just not sacred or holy if you'd ever say how can you say there's sarcasm in the Bible because there is like, I'll show you another part where there's sarcasm in the Bible there's a lot of them actually but I'll just show you one 
Exodus chapter 2, verse 17. Jethro is a priest, right? He's, he's the priest, and, and he later becomes Moses' father-in-law. But he has seven daughters, so he's, he's outdone me by a lot. I only have four, so. I don't know how he does. It's pretty awesome. But anyway, they, they get water to water their flocks, to water their sheep, right? So they, they get water, they put it in the trough, and then all their sheep come about, and they get water. And after they do all of this hard work of carting water to the trough for their flock of sheep. Then these other male shepherds would come and drive them away so that they could water their own sheep. And that's when the story takes place of like Moses being the man. He's like, hey, you know, I'll take care of this, right? So here, verses 16 and 17. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, that's Jethro, and they came and and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. So these other shepherds came and, and took all their hard work and and watered their flocks instead. And so you have to keep in mind, shepherds are tough guys. Shepherds are really tough guys. They have to be able to protect the flock against predators like lions and bears, like oh my, and, and fight off bandits and fight off raiders while much of the time they're doing this alone. And so... This might sound sexist to some people today, but the author's intent is a sarcastic one in saying, take a look at these really tough shepherds. They're so tough that they can drive seven women away from this watering trough to feed their sheep. They are so tough. And just like they do when this predator attacks one of their sheep, this shepherd's away able to like fight off this bear Man, they're so tough to fight off these women. It's sarcastic. It's making fun of them. And, right? and so the author is, is mocking those shepherds. And so this mockery is what's happening here in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And it, it's something to be aware of of ourselves when we're in a place of power. When you are a shepherd. When you are a captain of a raiding team. See, God, God is good at reminding us that we're not so tough. That taking things into our own hands and, and operating out of our own fear or political maneuvering or power grabbing, it's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. And to do things, you can tell that you're not probably doing a very good thing if you have to disguise yourself or if you have to hide under the cover of night to get away with something. And that's probably a good sign of mockery from God to say like, no, that's not right. You're you're not doing right. And so often we, we think we're so right. We think we're so tough that God humbles us and reminds us you're not. You don't have it all right. You are not that tough. And so you couple that power grabbing and a messed up theology, a misinterpretation of theology, and it's a really bad combination, a really bad one. Take a look at verse 8. And brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. 
And so here's where you have this messed up theology from Rehab and Ba'ana. Because the first part of the quote is true. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. It's true. That's true. That's fact. But here's the second sentence in that quote in verse 8 that is a wrong interpretation of what God is doing, of Scripture. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. No, he hasn't. That's not true. That is bad theology. That is a misinterpretation of what's going on. So Rahab and Ba'ana are inferring that they are God's servants who are doing God's will. That God used them to avenge David and to get rid of Saul's offspring. And, and because of this obedience, you, you know, David, you should reward us as, as good and faithful servants in your kingdom because we, we are instruments of righteousness of the mighty King David and we got rid of your rival and, and now you are indeed king. And now that we're in your kingdom, we're totally ready to receive our due reward. Like, like give it to us. Give it to us. You see, the world is is full of people with bad theology. That they are thinking they are doing God's will, that they are thinking that they are obedient, that they are thinking a lot of things about themselves, including that they're so right and they're so tough. But people like Rehab and Ba'ana, who use this theology to cover their evil beliefs, to cover their evil actions, when what they think and do is not really of God at all. And I'm sure we all know of people who have done things like this in the name of God, and we can look in our checkered past as Christians, and we can look at things like the Crusades. We can look at evil things that we use the scriptures for to back up what we believe. And not that all Christians believe this, but there were Christians that used the Bible to back up their reason for slavery in the United States. And so there are all these different people who look to justify their actions by misinterpreting the scriptures. And this is precisely how cults are formed. What is needed is a discernment to see through these things. And sometimes you can tell when someone's theology is questionable simply by the fruit of their actions. You, you look at Rechab and Ba'ana and they have a head in the sack. Hmm, not too hard to figure out that that's not of God. Like, I don't think God would do that. And we don't have to have much of a theological debate if you come to me with a head in the sack, right? We don't have to have that much of a debate. Like, open your Bibles and, and prove to me that that's wrong. Like, bro, go to jail. Like, you know, you, you don't... And it's similar to people who, who want to justify their horrible actions when, when all we have to do is, is, is look at their behavior. Look at what they say and how they say it. Look at their actions and what they're doing or not doing. And it's not that words and outcomes are everything because some th things do need to be looked into further. But, but with Rechab and Ba'ana, David sees through this 
wrong theology, this wrong interpretation. Verse 9, But David answered Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Birabites, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for this news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth. Oops. Like, Rechab and Baanah wrongly saw their actions as, as justice. And David saw that their actions were as wicked men killing a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Now what does this tell us? We have to be very careful of what we say and what we do. And you can use the most righteous, pious, veiled in the Bible talk as just this wrapping paper to the deeper issues that are actually happening in the character of your own life. And, and what you're after may just be coming out of your own depravity, underhandedness, and stubbornness. And you might be wrong. And that's something to keep in mind all the time, is that you might be wrong. Don't be so proud, because you don't know the evilness of your heart as much as God does, and what is coming out of your mouth and coming out in your actions. And sometimes we like to use God to, to back up our own unrighteousness. Now take a look at David's response in verse 9. As the Lord lives. And so David is making this oath. He's making an oath to God. As the Lord lives. And then he adds this personal statement of his. Who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And this is David's personal testimony. Starting from 1 Samuel chapter 16. All the way through to this point. That David is full of gratitude toward the Lord for how he has been delivered from all this adversity. Ever since chapter 16, when David is a shepherd and how he delivered David as a shepherd from the claws of a lion and, and a bear when he was this shepherd boy. And then how, how God delivered him from Goliath, this Philistine who is a battle-tested beast. And how God delivered David from Saul, who was pursuing his life for 13 chapters in 1 Samuel, sometimes very close to death and not knowing how long he was going to have to run for his life. And David knows God intimately. And this intimacy with God is with us. That you can probably track down your 1 Samuel 16 moments up to this point in your life and say, God has delivered me from my adversity. That God continues to work in you and in me. And there are many of us who can say, God has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Verse 12, And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Now this time David delivered justice. This time he comes through. He, does, he didn't do it when Joab killed Abner. But he did what the law required him to do this time. 
and he had the hands cut off that killed Ishbosheth, and he had the feet cut off that brought Ishbosheth's head to Hebron. And so David carried out this law this time. He displayed it publicly for people to see, and he needed to show the people that he did not condone the actions of Ba'anah and Rehab, and not just the people of Judah where he was already crowned king, but he also needed to show the northern tribes of Israel that this was not his doing. And he renounces the evil actions of Rehab and Ba'anah, and he says, it's not me. I put them to death for what they did. It wasn't me. And this action of justice under David is also a prophetic one. It's a similar, or it's a smaller picture. It's a smaller picture of what the greatest king, Jesus, is going to do. Our king who is going to deliver justice upon his return as king. And this is what is written by the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11 starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and this is the Davidic lineage that leads us to Jesus Christ. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. And speaking of Jesus. Now Jesus reigns over a kingdom of justice. And in Hebron, David reigned over his kingdom where justice was served at this point. And it's just but a glimpse because it's definitely not picture perfect because just a chapter before, David does not reign with justice over Joab. But it's just this glimpse of justice. That true justice that Jesus will bring with him upon his return, that there are these times that we're just wondering, like, what's going on? There's, there's so much war. There's, there's a lack of peace there's a, a lot of bloodshed and cruelty and, and barbaric acts. People are just savage. It's not going to be forever. That this cruelty, brutality, savagery of people, that does not or ever work the righteousness of God. But the righteousness of God will judge the sins of men. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness in any way that we've exhibited um, a pride, a toughness, a hard-headedness to believe that we are right. At any time, misinterpreting and mishandling the scriptures to, to back up our own unrighteousness. And we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to convict us, to show us where we are wrong. And God, we, we ask that we don't take justice in our own hands as, as you are the one who truly defines that. We ask, Lord, that we would approach 
situations, circumstances with humility, not believing that we're right and able to lay them at your feet. We do come with immense gratitude towards you because you have delivered us from every adversity. And so we seek you, God. We, we desire for you to reign. May we not take on the words and deeds of Abba'ana or his brother. May we humbly sit back, Lord, and receive from you and hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have uh, your communion elements, uh, let's take those out and we'll take communion together. And if you don't, just put up your hand and um, we'll get those over to you. Communion is a, a rich time, um, very rich in symbolism. That first element for this sacrament is the wafer, which is in the top of this pretty smart contraption during COVID times, but it existed well before COVID. Um, but during the Passover, when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he holds up this bread. And if you've been to a Passover Seder, there are three sleeves where the matzah goes in. The first and the third sleeve are whole matzahs. They're put in, and this middle sleeve is actually broken. And so when Jesus is saying, this is me, he's talking about that middle sleeve broken for us. And the sign of the Trinity right there in the sleeves of a Passover Seder, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so in recognition of Jesus Christ's body broken for us, let's take this in remembrance and celebration of Christ. We also have this symbol of the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. Taking away our sins so that his blood covers us with his righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Let's take this in remembrance and celebration of Christ. Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us, to be raised from the dead on the third day, to be on the right-hand side of your throne. And we are looking forward to his return, where justice reigns. In Jesus' name, amen.